Today's episode of Binge Mode Weekly on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities, like New York and Los Angeles. And they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate. We're trying to raise $250,000. And if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com slash WCK. I will help you. But you must answer one question. You have but to ask. Does Binge Mode contain adult content and spoilers? It is the key to everything. To bring balance to the Force? To destroy. And now, Binge Mode. Thanks for the support. As always. That's what friends are for. If you're gonna face Maul, you'll need these. Capture them all. I'll take care of Grievous. With any luck, this will all be over soon. Master Kenobi always said there's no such thing as luck. Good thing I taught you otherwise. Anakin. Good luck. And welcome to Binge Mode Weekly, proudly part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Mm. I'm Mallory Rubin, Editor-in-Chief of the Ringer.com. It's a great website. It's an even greater (laughs) Editor-in-Chief. Oh, that's sweet. It's a great website. And it's because of you, Mal. Isaac, cut that. (laughs) Because of our collective effort. It is. As a team. With you as the chief, couldn't ask for a better leader. Oh, that's really nice. You're making me blush. (laughs) (laughs) Joining me today, now that his legion has painted their helmets to honor Isaac. Yes. It's Ringer Senior Creative, your favorite commander, Jason Concepcion. Well, paint job's a little crude, but we think it gets the idea across. And good thing, because it's another special quarantine edition of Binge Mode Weekly, whereas we social distance amid the coronavirus crisis. We'll be coming to you once a week to cover a series of rotating topics 
revisiting some past favorites and diving into some new stories as well, while also getting to work on the next full binge mode project. More info on that front coming quite soon. Mm. Stay tuned. Please Mm -hmm. subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Give us the five-star ratings or more. (laughs) Oh, yes. Five-star ratings. I know now what I must do. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to compare jetpack notes. Hmm. Also, if you're looking to spice up your work-from-home wardrobe before Zooming into your next council meeting, please head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch. Last time on Binge Mode Weekly, we explored the first 18 issues of Saga the absolutely outstanding Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples epic space opera from Image Comics. And we will be returning to Saga soon. Today, we'll dive in deep. Deep. Into your outposts for another Binge Mode mailbag. As always, spoiler warning, we will be chatting about a lot of different stuff today. The Clone Wars, Saga, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Survivor, a lot of other things. So please proceed with caution. Grab your lightsabers, prepare for the siege, because it's time to ask the underscore. Our first question from Kayla. How fucking good is the Clone Wars right now? I mean, who thought when the Phantom Menace came out that Darth Maul would end up one of the most fleshed out (laughs) on-screen characters in canon? Great point. Last two episodes of the Clone Wars have been... Hammers. Remarkable. Absolute hammers. What are your thoughts, Mel? So I guess we should note that we're recording this on Friday morning. So another episode will have been consumed by many of our listeners by the time this goes up. So we'll be talking about the first two episodes of the final four episodes, the concluding arc here. My thoughts are, first of all, that we got a lot of Clone Wars questions. And so we should note for everybody that we will be doing a Clone Wars podcast next week. Yes. Coming off the conclusion of season seven, obviously the series finale as well. So we're going to be saving most of our discussion for that podcast, which you'll be able to find a couple days after the finale. Briefly, though, as a teaser, the start of season seven was, I thought, quite slow. You know, the Bad Batch arc, which I really enjoy, had already been out there for consumption in a different form. And while it was obviously delightful to be back with Ahsoka again, the Ahsoka Trace Rafa spice running arc was... Knowing how precious and limited the time left was, that was not necessarily how I wanted to spend it. But this final arc, the Siege of Mandalore, has been absolutely outstanding. And it's really no surprise given the ingredients at play. You're talking about something that Dave Filoni teased way back before Season 7 even dropped, noting that he really treated these final four episodes as his baby, writing them. It's branded, this concluding arc, as a Lucasfilm limited production. You know, they are presenting it as something special. Maul, love when you see the red Clone Wars word mark and you know you're getting a Maul episode and you just get that chill. Who has been a, to the point in the question, an absolutely elemental figure in, in Clone Wars and Rebels, is very much at the heart of what is unfolding on the screen. Mandalore is involved, which is exciting not only in the animated Star Wars TV universe, but because of how we can now connect that to what we have seen in season one of The Mandalorian and might learn 
and connect. Anakin and Obi-Wan are heading into the decisive moments of the Revenge of the Sith plots. They split with Ahsoka after the absolutely like heart-wrenching reunion between Anakin and Ahsoka in the prior episode. And they had to split because the timeline has to sync up with what we know has unfolded in Sith. And that is like spine tingling because we know that Anakin is marching toward his fall. And little moments like seeing Ahsoka say to hologram Obi-Wan, I can't imagine he likes the council telling him to spy on Palpatine. I just feel my heart like melting in my chest as I'm watching this all unfold. And there's this really thrilling sensation and also this kind of helpless feeling because you know where they're going. But this is such a key part of the overall timeline and the timeline for so many of the characters we care about. And filling more of it in is just incredibly, incredibly rewarding. You know, Rex and the 501st. Ahsoka with lightsabers in her hands again. It's been visually arresting, heart-poundingly action-packed. The Ahsoka Maldol, which we'll definitely talk about more next week, is like instantly up there in the pantheon of Star Wars lightsaber battles. It was really remarkable. I love when she's like, you know what? You're lucky Anakin's not here because yeah. he would wash you. <laughs> he would have owned in you. In a second. <laughs> Such good trash talk. Yeah. I loved it. And in addition to that, it has been really, really moving. So I've been loving it. I cannot wait for the final two episodes. Yeah. Watch the penultimate one today and then the finale Monday on May the 4th. And as excited as I am, I'm also really sad, really sad that it's ending, even though I know nothing really ends and we get to go experience it together again for the rest of time. You know, sadness, I think, is that's the thing I couldn't stop thinking about. What a really singular and interesting achievement Clone Wars is, and specifically like through the lens of these last couple Mm -hmm. episodes in the Mandalore arc. When you think about the original trilogy and how triumphant it is. Yes, Empire is a downer and a dark known and really, you know, obviously a pinnacle in terms of storytelling in that original trilogy, but it's a triumphant story. Mm -hmm. And the prequel content has really reframed that as just a heartbreaking tragedy on multiple levels for numerous characters. This is an unbelievably sad story of idealism destroyed and innocence lost and friendship bonds ruptured forever. You know, when Maul makes his pitch to Ahsoka, I I don't want to talk too much about it. Yeah. It's really safe. But when Maul makes his pitch to Ahsoka and there is like a pause where she thinks it over, Mm -hmm. thinks over everything he said about the Jedi and how, listen, they failed you too. and I got to tell you, that might have been the most effective come to the dark side pitch that I've ever heard. Where, And I was hanging on a knife's edge waiting to see what she would say. I could not believe that moment. Well, I'm with you completely. And of course, she does actually initially say, I will help you before swinging yeah. back because what is her condition? Right. Tell me why you give a shit about Anakin Skywalker. And so yes. that poetic resonance of... The thing that pushes her to dueling Maul in that moment. Now, I don't think Ahsoka falling to the dark side would have been a, not only because we know her future arc as Fulcrum and Rebels, et cetera, 
would have been a particularly believable plot point to even attempt to pull off in this limited span of time. But I agree with you, the pitch, and of course, this is somebody who has left the Jedi Order, who has rebelled against the strictures and rigidity, even though she still stands for the goodness and for fighting to protect people and to protect order. The dual aspect there of A, Maul trying to thwart Order 66, which is what that is. Trying to, and even though from his perspective, it is purely selfishly motivated. He just wants to stop Sidious. Rule of two and all. He wants to be the master and he wants his apprentice. He still has never forgiven. I mean, obviously, Kenobi is his main, (laughs) main enemy. Kenobi. (laughs) That moment when he's like, (laughs) I was expecting Kenobi was just, oh my God. It's like, why don't you just kiss Obi-Wan already? (laughs) He's never forgiven Sidious for... Moving on so quickly, going to Dooku, and then when he realized Maul was alive, still casting him aside. So that, coupled with the, again, poetic resonance of Ahsoka's rejection of the pitch, hinging on wanting to protect Anakin, who is mere moments away from his own fall to the dark side, is really, really wrenching. There's a really interesting, like, parallel that I was thinking about a lot watching the episode from last week, which was Ahsoka's just unyielding support and belief in Anakin and how heartbreaking that is. And then the moment when Maul is finally ready to cut bait with the Mandalorians who have so believed in him and they're radioing him, you know, we need your help. Some of them. Yeah, some of them. (laughs) And he's just like, well, sorry, I'm done now. Bye. And how tragic it is for these various figures who have put their belief in in Maul, in Anakin, in the Jedi at large. And when that belief is shown to be faulty, what a sad thing that is. It's just a tremendously sad story and told so well. And I agree with you. I wish I like the Bad Batch, too. They're fun. It just felt like something that's like for season five or season four. That's set up. Like, it felt like a little bit of a misuse of space. This is Mm -hmm. the time for arcs to pay off, not to be setting up things. Yeah, it's an interesting matter of perspective because I have found it fairly compelling to hear Filoni say in interviews that he has viewed Clone Wars as the story of the clones and of Ahsoka. And so from that, through that lens, it makes sense to focus on sure. that body, that group of people continuing to explore the different, not only personalities and identities, which we've always really appreciated about this show, but what happens if you suddenly do break the physical mold and your own brothers think of you as different. I think for me, you know, we've talked about this at length already before, a huge part of how I watch Clone Wars and what I appreciate about it is that it further fleshes out and enhances this point in the timeline and these characters who I'm already deeply invested in. Also, this entire experience of the last few weeks and how satisfying it's been, I might start sending a, like, hashtag Rebels season five tweet every day for the rest of my life. I just need Filoni to make season five of Rebels. I need that to happen after seeing this. I know. I completely agree. I'm just like, why does Rebels need to stop, really? Obviously, the ending was why perfect, does it need to but stop? it's also it it's so ripe for a return. And maybe yeah. it doesn't make sense as season five of Rebels. Maybe it's a new spinoff with Ahsoka and Sabine going to look for Ezra, but that's the Rebels yeah. universe, certainly. I don't know. I just so, so, so badly 
want to continue to live in this world with this kind of Star Wars storytelling because it is so immensely rewarding. It really is. It really is. Number two from Connor. He asks, who's your five character team to take along on a one year journey in the rocket ship treehouse saga characters only. And then we're going to tack on a very quick related bonus question here, Jay, if you want to toss out some comic book recommendations while we're talking about saga, this is from Ashley T. If someone's first comic book or graphic novel was saga and they loved it, what would your next recommendation for them be? We got a few questions in that mold from people who have read saga to listen to binge, which is really delightful to see. Thank you, everyone. And now we're into it and want to keep going. Well, first of all, I just want to say that Marco, Alana, and Hazel are not on my list. Okay. I love them dearly, just mainly because I don't want to hear them fucking all the time. It would be just nonstop with them. Exactly. (laughs) They're constantly having sex. Exactly. And it would just be like, can we just relax on this ship? Mm -hmm. Noise just carries throughout the ship. Okay, so here we go. Number one, heist. Okay, great one. Heist. Just a great storyteller. I would love to hear about his writing process. I'd love to hear about how uh, the opposite of war is going, his many wives. You could hear how the opposite of war was going if you had picked Marco and Alana. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd love to hear about his many wives. He's a person with stories to tell clearly and likes to get loose a little bit. Just a, a fun person who loves life. Great stuff. Next, Goose. Just fun to look at. Mm-hmm. An upbeat little creature who is also fearsome when roused to anger. <sighs> yes. And he loves his animal companions. And therefore, I would have to have the sweet, sweet Frendo. Mm-mm. No one has anything bad ever to say about Frendo except maybe Clara sometimes. Yeah. Basically just attacking Frendo for her defecation. A normal bodily function, Clara. Yeah, Clara was like, I thought we were going to eat this thing, but now (laughs) we're not, and we're just stuck with her. (laughs) Terrible. Very upsetting. So I need a goose, and I need Frendo together, because goose without Frendo was just bittersweet, and Frendo couldn't... Frendo obviously was fine without goose, but goose could not stop thinking about her, so let's get them together. I'd love to hear more about goose's life as kind of the de facto, like, watchman of heist's lighthouse mm-hmm. real estate and what that was like and the various people who would come and go i you know to get that perspective on heist's life on quietus i think would be great and i think mm-hmm. goose is just cute isabel <laughs> now you would say well how do you have isabel without hazel they were separated once i just think isabel is great i want her around right i think she's wise clearly beyond her years because she's been in in existence. I don't want to call her alive. I think that's probably insensitive, but she's been in in existence for an unknown number of years, clearly a very long time. Yeah, you don't want to go into Ron Weasley at nearly headless Nick's death day party territory with when it's appropriate to say something about being alive or dead, you know? Right. I'm not (laughs) going to do that. That would be insensitive around her. But she's just like really fun and it's got like a really acerbic sense of humor. Yeah. Very creative with the various horror illusions that she takes on. Wonderful. I miss her. I want her around. I love her energy. And then finally, Clara. Wild pick from you here. (laughs) This is a heat check pick. (laughs) First of all, the tattoos, I want to talk about them. I want to talk about that tattoos. Yeah. I 
kind of want to see where her and Heist were going. Mm-hmm. So like sure. having them together Let it play out, yeah, is interesting to me. Clara has. I don't want to say beef, but she's had sharp edged words with almost everyone that's on my list. (laughs) And I find that endlessly entertaining. She's just one of the wittiest comeback artists in the story. Yeah. Great with a zinger. Great with a zinger. If the rocket ship needs protecting, I really want her there because she's such a veteran of battles and fights. And I don't know, something about her energy that is at once maternal but also fierce and protective mm-hmm. is just something I, I warm to. Like her staying in the prison with yeah. her community was sad but also felt so right. Like mm-hmm. her just getting tatted up was fascinating to me. Remarkable, remarkable volume in the prison tat collection in a relatively short span of time. She found a place in this world when she went to prison. Yeah. And I just want to know more about that. I think she's great. We're in like Eastern Promises territory with Clara pretty quickly. It's I mean, wild. she went right to face tats. She's like, yeah, let's get a dagger. <laughs> let's did. get a dagger under the eye. I was like, oh, Jesus. Whoa. This is a good one. So my question with her is whether you worry that the edge, given the scenario, five yeah. characters, one rocket ship, one year, that that quickly, maybe too quickly goes from entertaining and a compelling wrinkle in the dynamic to everybody's mad at each other all the time. No, nobody's getting along and we have a lot of tension. No, I'm not worried about that at all. And I'll tell you why. First of all, Heist and Goose known to get along famously for years. They did it for many years on Quietus. They're going to be fine. Frendo, everybody loves Frendo except for Clara, whatever. It's kind of like a 97, 98 Bulls situation to like talk about something that's going on in the zeitgeist right now. I have such a core of good natured leadership on Mm. my squad before adding Clara, who's like the Rodman. Right. It's only because I have four great personalities that I can even think about adding the Clara. And that's why I'm going to add her. I think they're going to hold her down. I think they're going to keep her grounded. And I think she's going to add something that they need, which is a little bit of experience and cynicism in a a particular way. And, you know, like, Heist is always ready to break out the board game to bring her back to Earth and kind of, like, cool her out. And I think they're going to keep her sane. I think they're going to keep that edge blunted a little bit. I'm not worried about it. At all. I think it's going to be entertaining. You know she's going to ask for the in-season vacation to Vegas, but you also know you have the other team members to bring her back to the rocket ship. I got it. That's right. I'm compelled by that argument. (laughs) What about you? My five. It'll surprise no one to hear that my first pick is Lion Cat. (laughs) (laughs) I love Lion Cat so much. I love an animal, obviously. Yes. Halo is right here as we record, napping next to me. I'm petting him right now as I answer this question. I need a cuddle buddy. You know, I yes. need I need that cat there with me. Bring me balance. Bring me peace and comfort. Lion Cat, also an asset. You know, we're talking about a year. In this yeah. galaxy, the Saga galaxy, shit goes wrong all the time. I need characters around me who are ready to help in a scrap. And we have seen Lion Cat without... A whiskers width of hesitation, 
bite off the face. Yes. The moly face of a foe. So that's what I'm looking for. And <laughs> let me just throw this out there. Now, on the one hand. Please, please. Do I want, in this kind of scenario, someone constantly calling me out on my bullshit? Not ideal. However, <laughs> I love the ability to suss out when my rocket mates are lying yes. to me. <laughs> that very would be useful. really handy in a pinch. <laughs> Unimpeachable pick here, I think. I also have Heist. I'm with you on everything you said about Heist. Heist is in my squad, too. You know that pacifist tendency, I think, will be a good influence on my squad. You noted one Great. of the absolute number one factors with the choice here. Story time. Love a story. And a story. Heist can provide story time for us every single night, every day. Read us tales. Also, who knows? Maybe we'll workshop something new together. Get in there and create. Who's to say? That would be amazing. It would be wonderful. And then you mentioned the board games, and that's a huge one, too. You need leisure time. You need to be able to unwind and heist appreciation for the symphony, the illustrated children's book. And finally, the board game as the highest forms of elevated art. I really respect and admire. Next, I did pick Marco. Interesting. Now, I'm I'm feeling some genie energy from (laughs) you. Yes, exactly. You're, you're on to me. <laughs> As Mr. and Mrs. Weasley used to say, right in one. <laughs> I don't feel great necessarily about separating Marco, Alana, and Hazel from each other for the sake of my own amusement. All right? It's not great. But sure. I've also said on this very podcast that I would slaughter all the younglings to keep little baby Yoda alive. So You did say that? <laughs> you've all seen my heart. <laughs> nothing to hide anymore. I also like to think, limited span of time here, sadly, tragically, but also realistically, this family has spent time apart before. They always come back stronger. That's how I'm going to rationalize it to myself. I'm helping them to rediscover their passion and commitment to each other. I love this. When they reunite at the end. Marco, easy on the eyes. You know? Really is. He's a a good looking kid. (laughs) As Petricor noted, healthy slab he is. <laughs> so I like that sexiness. I love the fact that his uh-huh. wardrobe is bizarrely almost the exact same as mine. You know, I love a nice pair of joggers. Love a nice pair of toms when I'm when I'm trying to shake it up <laughs> for my sneaker addiction. What if I run out of clothing? There's a hiccup on the rocket ship. The ship can't do laundry for us. I need to borrow a pair of joggers. Marco can lend them to me. I'm just being practical here, okay? Yeah, and And maybe he can weave you some more, too. Yes, exactly. Pick up where Bar left off. Create clothing for us. Protective clothing at that. He is also just so sweet. And he's fiercely loyal, fiercely protective. I like the fact that he would simultaneously set a goal for us as a group. We'd be working toward finding someone or something, achieving something. And yet, every minute that he was with us, he would be so focused on keeping us safe, Mm -hmm. keeping us strong. It's wonderful. You know, he tries to maintain the peace, but he can seriously kick ass when he needs to. Now that always comes at the expense of his personal inner peace, but he does what's necessary when he has to. My next pick is also a character you had. I have Isabel as well. 
same quandary that you faced with the Isabel Hazel dynamic, but yeah. I don't view this as a breach of their permanent bond. I certainly don't think that we are compromising anything about the state of Hazel's soul. Just a little, you know, a little getaway, a little getaway, a little mini moon. Think of it that way. <laughs> Isabel's just a great hang. Great hang. A hundred percent a great hang. Hip. It's never not been a good hang. Fun, interesting, yep. nimble in a conversation, but also fierce, unafraid, keeps people in check. Yeah. Now, vanishes in the daylight. Sure, that'll come up a time or two over the course of a year. But <laughs> sometimes, and again, I love Isabel. I want Isabel around. Building in the fact that you can decrease yeah. your number by one, spread out a little bit, a little less crowded. I thought the same. Not a bad thing. You know, I thought the same. A year's a long time. And then finally, I also had Goose. I mean, love him. of course. Now, I want to say, in the interest of full disclosure, transparency with you and the listeners, I intend to cheat here because I, I know that I knew Goose can sense Frendo across the galaxy. Sure, distance matters. It always does in magic, Jason. But I'm counting on Goose to lead us to Frendo, and then we will bring Frendo on board, even though Frendo wasn't a part of the original calculus. <laughs> so this is a sneaky two-for-one for me here at the end. When you're just looking at Goose, axe wielder sliced through yeah. the Will's fingers like a knife through a block of cheddar, you know? Actually, you can meet resistance with cheddar sometimes. Depends on the sturdiness of the yeah, cheddar. A, a hot axe through cheddar. <sighs> yes, oof. Delicious. I haven't had breakfast yet. That sounds really lovely. Yeah, that actually, sounds good to me. I haven't. I haven't had breakfast either. <laughs> Goose is loyal and brave, and so precious. So that little face. Yeah, every <laughs> time he yells something, every time he has the chopper, uh, as he calls it, that that Clara so traded him for Brendo. Every time he has the chopper and he's holding it up in his two little arms above his head, I'm like, God, you are just the cutest. remarkable, remarkable stuff. So that's my crew. Now. Let's say you stop off at some planet somewhere. Yeah. A little day trip. Okay. And Lion Cat comes back carrying, you know, the decapitated head <laughs> of some creature. Mm hmm Would this trouble you at all? Like, You know what I say? You would do what? I say that's my sidekick. <laughs> you can, <laughs> and you go ahead and keep it on the ship or leave it outside. How much time do we have? You know, are we trying to flee? Does Lion Cat sure. need a nutritious, protein-rich meal? I would take all those <laughs> variables into consideration. You know, I can't answer this question in a vacuum context. Okay. Is everything okay. okay? But I won't judge Lion Cat. The creatures in my life I love fully, and yeah. animals need to eat. And also, while I'm sure that we would develop new habits, new routines together, yeah, instinct is instinct. Instinct is instinct, and Lion Cat. Sometimes likes to kill large, sentient creatures. It's true. I thought you would pick Sweet Boy. I was going to pick Sweet Boy, but like the darts. Too high a risk of the darts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Too high a risk with the darts. Yeah. You're just going for like a overnight piss and all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, Sweet Boy. Listen, I love Sweet Boy. Sweet Boy was cute as hell. Obviously a great companion. A little dumb. Like, Sweet Boy just kind of kept walking into bad situations and, like, barely getting out. And I don't need that. Lion Cat at least was smart enough to be like, <laughs> I'm not getting involved with it. Lion Cat, very, very smart. Sweet Boy, a little stupid. Lion Cat is brilliant. I, I'm going to defend Sweet Boy's uh, honor. I think Sweet Boy would be a great companion. I really do. 
Now, finally, with Marco, I, I need to ask, we grabbing those horns at all? Listen. <laughs> Clearly would need to be when Isabel is not around. If we've learned anything over the course of Saga and our discussions about Saga, it's what the opposite of war is. And who am I to stand yeah. in the way of the pursuit of progress? <laughs> I also feel like part of this thought experiment in my mind is that there's some prep time. There's some level of inevitability about how this is going to unfold. We have this journey to take. So maybe there's a chat that Marco and Alana have in advance, a little understanding. Yeah, I like it. You know. What happens in space, it stays in space. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, let's go with that. Oh, boy, uh, Marco. Okay. So hot. Comic book Rex. Comic yeah. book Rex. Someone who loves Saga, maybe new to the comic book reading experience. What are, what are you suggesting next? Let's stay on Image Comics. Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey's The Wicked and the Divine is, I think, just an incredible comic. The art is so beautiful and stylish. And now the setup is mythological deities are real. And they are like celebrities in this world. I don't want to give more than that away, but it's just a great, great read and incredible to look at. A really fun take on kind of like pop culture through the lens of like this fantastical setup and these magical deities. I would check that out. That's another great one on Image Comics. Why the Last Man? If you like Brian K. Vaughn. Now, I'm reading that now. It's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Really thought-provoking. The -hmm. setup is that a virus strikes the earth and it kills all the males of every species. And so all that's left are women, except for this one man and his male monkey monkey companion. (laughs) It is a ruthless and incredible story filled with much, much death and sadness. I would say that it was not necessarily the most sensible new reading project for me at amid this a moment, coronavirus yeah. quarantine. Yeah, I agree. But other than that, I've really been enjoying it. Love and Rockets is another great one that's just a really well-written tale, not what you expect from comic books. And then if you're thinking like something Marvel and you want to like engage with that, I love Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men run. Hmm. You don't really have to know that much about the X-Men to get involved with it. And I thought that his characterizations of particularly Kitty Pride and Cyclops were just great. Maybe the best Cyclops like ever written. You understand like why he is a leader of a team. Good stuff. Sexy and fun and funny. What about you? You know, I bend the knee to you here. I was going to throw out Why the Last Man because I am enjoying it so fully right now. And we've already recommended this in the past, but I had such a fun time reading Star Wars, Darth Vader, Dark Lord of the Sith, if people haven't read that. And especially, you know, if you're enjoying Clone Wars right now and are interested in Anakin's arc right before and then right after his fall, that's a really, really, really immersive 25-issue dive into the first wave of his life as Darth Vader. So I would throw that out there as well. Number three, Don Gallagher. Hi, Mal and Jason. Wondering if either of you will be watching Normal People. Oh. I know you both appreciate a good love story and compelling relationships. 
Thanks Ooh. from Belfast. Wow. Thanks Normal from people Belfast. Dope. making Ireland sexy again <laughs> in 2020. Um, I want to read the book first, which you mm-hmm. are. So why don't you tell us about it? Yes, I am currently reading the book and had a conversation with our beloved colleagues, Chris Ryan and Julia Lippman, a few days ago. Check out their Normal People podcast on TV Concierge on the Ringer Podcast Network. <laughs> Love when I make Isaac proud with the oh, podcast incorporation. And they both told me, I, first of all, I trust their opinions on TV in general. And I, I trust their read on how I am going to respond to the sexiness in a show. And they told me that I was going to absolutely adore normal people, that I was going to become obsessed with it, that I was going to fall in love with Connell, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, oh boy, this sounds really great. Then I see the following headline on The Cut. This is a blog post from April 22nd. Watch normal people alone and with a vibrator. <laughs> okay. Hello. So I'm like, wow, this is this must really be a sexy show. I had wanted to get into Sally Rooney's novels. I had not read Normal People or Conversations with Friends yet. Downloaded Normal People onto the old Kindle, started reading mm-hmm. it a couple nights ago, and it is so fantastic that I can barely find the words to convey right now because it is such a mind, heart, body, and soul (laughs) warping experience in a good way that I feel like it's not only the kind of thing that I won't be able to fully process until I finish reading it, but the kind of story that's going to stay with me for a really, really, really long time after I finish it. So I don't want to start the show until I finish the book, but it's a short book. I think I will be finishing it today or tomorrow. So I intend to start the show this weekend. I will probably watch it all very quickly. I won't get into spoilers or plot details. Connell and Marianne are such incredible characters. Their love story is simultaneously so unique and yet feels completely universal. And that's one of my favorite things in a story. Sally Rooney's style, her stylistic approach is really revelatory to me. I I don't know what I was expecting, but I've been kind of floored. So the, the chapters alternate point of view between Connell and Marianne. The time jumps are mm, small chapter to chapter, but you're moving across their lives. And then within each chapter, you're anchored in a certain moment in time in the present, but then you weave back into the past to fill in that gap mm. between chapters quite seamlessly. And then there are no quotation marks, okay? No quotation marks. So the dialogue, the speech, when you just look at the page, is presented exactly as the narration is. And for well, like- McCarthy, th- everyone is doing this now. Three pages. <laughs> yeah, three pages I've added disorienting, but it's such an effective technique because- you find yourself feeling very quickly that you are not having their lives presented to you. You are a part of it. You just embed yourself so fully in the exchanges that they are having and what is unfolding in real time. It's such a sexy story. It's so, so intimate. It is deeply upsetting at times, 
incredibly raw and honest. The insights into human nature and how people think about themselves and each other, I think, is occasionally quite profound. And it's really, 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 really moving. I love it so far. I can't wait to finish the book. I can't wait to watch the show. Can't wait to share it with all of you. Well, I can't I'm going to I can't wait to read it now. And I got to say, you're going to like it. The Irish people (laughs) really punching above their weight in terms of the amount of incredible quality they have added to the world of letters in the English language. It's actually amazing. Like Rooney, I just read Kevin Barry's Night Boat to Tangier. Beckett, like you could go on and on. The amount of Irish Listen, we can't mention writers. Beckett without mentioning James Joyce, you know? James Joyce, the contribution of the nation of Ireland to letters mm-hmm. is profound. Stories play a big part in the story, the nature of communication yeah. and how people put thoughts out into the world and share them with each other is really core to the Uh. examination. And Connell is an English student at Trinity. You're going to love it. Okay. I I just downloaded it, so I can't wait to read it. (laughs) Number four. Youth asks, Oh, man. What fictional sports team would you like to see a The Last Dance-style documentary about? What a fun question. It's a really fun question. I have three that I would just really Okay. Love to dive into. Wow, you're pulling a Reuben. <laughs> I'm pulling a Reuben. Number one, the 1939 New York Knights from mm. The Natural. Okay, incredible. Let's unpack all the weird things that have happened to this team. And I would just love to hear the players on this team talk about all the weirdness. First of all, like a 43-year-old dude walks out of nowhere joins this team, gets a spot in the lineup because basically the star player runs through a wall (laughs) while trying to uh, catch a a fly ball and dies. And dies. (laughs) Runs into a wall so hard that he dies. Yep. Yep. What? That happened? That happened during this season. Then this 40, 43, 44-year-old dude starts going off to such a level that he's actually destroying stadiums. He's hitting balls into lighting rigs. The lighting rigs are exploding. He's hitting balls so hard that the balls fall apart. Mm -hmm. He's using a bat that no one is sure if it's regulation or not. Like, it's very up in the air. Wonder Boy. Yeah, like, are you allowed to make your own bat and then to carve your nickname into the bat? comes from a tree that was felled by lightning, I think you could do whatever the fuck you want. That's my take on Roy Hobbs and Wonder Boy. So all this is going on. Meanwhile, various forces are trying to corrupt this 40-something-year-old man who came out of nowhere and who everyone eventually finds out has played the entire season with a bullet lodged in his stomach. Yeah, that becomes a problem. What is that? This is incredible. Are you kidding me? I need to know more about it. We need to talk about this. We find out that he has like a love child with another woman. There's just like a lot of stuff going on. I can't wait to hear the gossip about this. I would love to hear the internal clubhouse stories and all that stuff about the 1939 New York Knights. What a weird fucking team. That's true. Kids, keep this in mind. If you're going to fuck in the barn, use protection. 
what did they have back? Did they really, did they even have condoms back then? I guess they did, but like, like literally made out of like sheep intestine or something. I should just note, by the way, this will shock you to hear, but Roy Hobbs in The Natural is only supposed to be 34. Though Robert Redford was 48 in real life when he played the role. (laughs) I swear. I swear. Just stop it. (laughs) I swear. I swear. Stop it. Next. The Kinsella Cornfield Deceased All-Stars. For some reason, I went all baseball. Incredible. The Kinsella Cornfield Deceased All-Stars. Okay. 1989, the Ray Kinsella Iowa Cornfield filled with dead baseball players. And somehow the lead has been buried through this. So the movie is Field of Dreams. Here is the headline, which somehow I think has been buried if, if you watch Field of Dreams. The afterlife exists, folks. It's real. That's right. It's real. What does this mean for religion? What does this mean for spirituality? What does this mean for our understanding of physics, our understanding of science? Mm -hmm. Our entire conception of reality has been blown up. Yeah. Because there's a bunch of dead baseball players from the early 20th century playing in an Iowa cornfield. You know what else is real? Choking hazards. Chew your hot dogs. <laughs> Chew them. <laughs> Folks, what is happening? Life and death have no meaning anymore. And it's because of these, these old freaks in this Iowa cornfield. We got to find out what's going on. Like, what's going on with the, how do you get to go? Who decides who gets to play? Is the afterlife just pro baseball players? Does this mean, like, if other people want to get into heaven, get into the afterlife. They now need to try and try out for a major league team. What does this mean for the rest of us who don't have this talent? I have so many questions. I need to know about it. I need to ask them about it. I love this. Are there soccer players out there? Are there basketball players? Are the heavens separated by league? Well, if you build it, they will come and then you can find out. Go build an ice hockey rink and find out. I just have so many questions. And so we need a last dance. And so this would be the last dance question mark, because clearly it's not the last dance. You come back. That's exactly right. You You get to play catch with dad. You get to play catch with dad. I love how you're just picking teams from baseball movie rewatchables that I've done with Bill, (laughs) where I I spend multiple minutes uninterrupted talking about how Kevin Costner's jeans fit. But 80s jeans and Kevin Costner. (laughs) Two great tastes that taste great together. And I just want to say, like, one more thing about the na- about uh, Field of Dreams. Two great movies, by the way. Soulful baseball movies that are honestly inspiring. These ghosts have now fucked up the traffic patterns for the entire area. Can we oh, yeah. erect a toll road? Can we take tickets or something? Like, can we support, like, the region? Because... Now you can't drive through Iowa anymore because all these people want to see the fucking ghosts. It's true. It's true. That was a really long, really long line of cars at the end. And finally, the 2008 Cullen Vampires from Twilight. Incredible. Why are we playing baseball without gloves? They're old school, you know? Twilight is a love story between a human teen and her teen vampire lover. And his family is involved. So his family loves to play baseball. They have a baseball game out in this field before a thunderstorm because they hit the ball with such tremendous force that it sounds like thunder and they don't want to reveal their existence to everyone else. 
They play in old timey. They somehow have like old timey cotton baseball uniforms, mm-hmm. but they don't play with gloves. They don't use gloves. They have everything else but the gloves. They use aluminum bats, which is absolutely confounding. Outrageous. <laughs> Honestly. You have the old timey uniforms, but you're using the aluminum bats. What the fuck is happening out here? Come on. And then this baseball game is then broken up by like evil vampires that show up and they're like, hey, how dare you play baseball around here? (laughs) I want to know everything. I need the oral history of this game. I need the oral history of like how you decide to let a human be the umpire for this game. Also, like, do you really need an umpire? I just have a lot of questions. Those are my three. What about you? I love all three of your picks because, well, first of all, as you know, I I love baseball. I love baseball movies. Yeah. But as subjects for your documentary, all of them would allow you to really focus on not only the sporting aspect, but the fantastical. There's a, I mean, especially, you know, obviously Twilight is literally a fantasy story, but in the natural, I mean, you're embedding Arthurian legend in every other frame. You're going to, be able to imbue your examination with the mysticism that is at play so often in those stories. You have themes of regret, motivation, purpose, so many of those core elements that we're drawn to in stories that there would be rich text for you. I can't wait to watch them, frankly. My pick, I did not go baseball, amazingly, though I did consider the Durham Bulls. I should say that in the interest of candor, but I ended up picking the season three Dylan Panthers from Friday Night Lights. Now, you might be saying, why season three? Here's why. One, if The Last Dance has taught us anything, it's that you pick your focus, but you still do the whole thing. You look back, you look ahead, you move across timelines, and you can even put a timeline on the screen, a literal timeline to help orient viewers as (laughs) to where you are. So, Coach Eric Taylor, he of the sad eyes that I love so much, won state (laughs) twice. He won in season one with the Dillon Panthers, of course, famously, and he won in season five with the East Dillon Lions. And you guys know this. I ride for the East Dillon years. It's incredibly fond of Vince Howard and those two seasons of Friday Night Lights. The season three team, of course, lost state. That's right. Crushing. I mean, think of that moment when Riggins leaves his shoes in Austin. It's it's almost too painful for words. It's terrible. And it was like, you know, when would he get another chance as like a 35-year-old guy still playing <laughs> <school football>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Great stuff. Well, I love Tim Riggins so much. Yeah. That is still the team and the season that I want to orient my doc around because it's mm. the it's the crucial pivot point. It's the fulcrum. Everything yeah. hinges on that moment in time. It is the end of Eric Taylor's Dylan Panthers tenure. It is the beginning of his East Dylan Lions tenure. It is the moment of such change and division and conflict. And then the heart and community that that conflict forces to the fore in the town of Dylan. Such a rich slate of characters. Tim Riggins' final high school season, as you just noted. Matt Saracen's final high school season. Matt Saracen, ever heard of him? Ever heard of QB1? (laughs) 
Of course, it is the season that gives us the McCoy family drama. You're bringing town politics into play. This is an incredibly rich moment in Tammy Taylor's arc. Mm. It has everything. Sorry. And again, it allows you to go backward through the Dylan years and forward into the moment that comes after the split. I think it's the perfect point, the perfect team to examine what went wrong, what went right, what does state mean to these people. A great moment to remind ourselves that so much of what we love about sports is obviously present in Friday Night Lights. Spirit of team, the spirit of community, investing fully in something that you're a part of, even though what being a part of it, quote unquote, means can vary so vastly from person to person. But that it was always, always, always a story about family and marriage and what you give to each other, what you take for yourself. And I think that all of that would be the perfect brew for a compelling documentary. So that's my pick. It's wonderful. Also, just tons of good looking people, you know. Number five, Paul Sarney asks, top five survivor seasons slash players. Mal, I can't wait to hear your rundown. I can't wait to get deep into this. (laughs) So this is hard. I mean, there are so many players and seasons in the Survivor Pantheon. So I'll go through this pretty quickly so that we're not suddenly doing a 90-minute Survivor podcast. For that, check out The Pot of Spoken with Riley McAtee. Players. Okay, to be clear, I'm going with my favorites, not necessarily the best, though obviously success on Survivor can inform how you feel about a player. Boston Rob for me. Five-time player and then also has the season, Island of the Idols, in which he is a mentor. One, Redemption Island. What could I possibly say about Rob that hasn't been said a million times? He's the godfather out on the island. The level, (laughs) Amba, (laughs) the level of control that he is able to exert seemingly effortlessly, the poise, the command, every single aspect of gameplay, social game, physicality, and challenges. He outplays, he outwits, he outlasts. He's worthy of the word iconic, even if you think we overuse it. And he's an unimpeachable. Survivor Mount Rushmore pick. My next pick for players is Tyson. Played four times. He's probably the person I enjoy watching on my television the most when it comes to the Survivor experience. He's so charismatic. He's just a fucking riot. He won Blood versus Water, of course. His humor, his ability to form relationships not only with his tribe mates, but crucially with the viewing public is I think really unmatched. And I, I absolutely cherish every season. Every time we get a chance to spend a season with him next for me is Cochran. Wow. Played in South Pacific and Caramon fans versus favorites. One fans versus favorites. I love Cochran as a certain type of archetype. You know, I like to, in my survivor player power rankings as in all aspects of my life, Try to get some variety, you know, keep it fresh. And Cochran's ability to apply math, strategy, theory Mm. to everything that was unfolding around him. I also love the people who come on the show and are just unapologetically obsessed with Survivor and manage to inject that fandom so fully into their own experience without it coming at the expense of their success. Really, that really has become, such a brilliant That really player. has become like an archetype of like Spencer, Adam, yes. these people who are like, well, actually, you know, in Cook Islands, the way they did it that time, you know, like that kind of Totally. Person. My next pick is Aubrey, who has played three times, obviously did not fare well on Edge of Extinction, but finished second in her 
Reigns Braun beauty season, lost to Michelle, of course, Karang, and is just a brilliant player. Brilliant. And I love Aubrey's humanity and how she really let us see so much of herself and the drive and anxiety that were present for her really unvarnished. And I felt like she was one of the people we got to know the best. Like I had a real sense of who Aubrey was in the real world through watching her play Survivor. And that is a little bit rarer than maybe you would think. And I also just love seeing a woman come in and run the game with smarts and strategy and intent. And she was fearless, really fearless, but also really deliberate. Loved watching her play. My fifth and final pick for players, and then I want to hear your players, and then we can do seasons after. And I shocked myself with this one. I have to say, I was like, am I going to pick, you know, my long-haired boyfriends, Malcolm and Joe? Am I going to pick Parv, who was certainly in the consideration set? I'm going with Tony. Yeah. And obviously, Tony is one of the best players in Survivor history. That's not in question. For me personally... Watching him on Kagayan, which is an incredible season, and I'm sure it will make both of our lists. And then Game Changers and now Winners at War. I feel like I have lived a full life with Tony. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> like when I when he won Kagayan, even though his approach to that season was so extraordinary and such a talking point in the Survivor fandom, I personally found it like too anxiety-inducing to watch. Yeah. Like, it, it actually gave me heart palpitations, you know? Every moment with Tony is like a minute from Uncut Gems. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then when he finally says, this is how I win, you're like, yes, it is. But this season, watching Tony at Winners at War, I am just absolutely enthralled. It's one of the greatest performances that I've ever seen. Yeah. in television or athletics. And Agreed. I will never think about the entire Survivor player universe the same way after this because he has it just embedded agree. himself immovably at the top of the list. So that's my top five for now. Obviously, I it always changes. Agree. Right now, today, that's what it is. How about for you? Who are your five favorite players? Let me pivot off what you just said. I have Tony on here. I think you he, love Tony. at this point, I just think he's become the greatest ever. And yeah. Listen, we don't know how Winners at War will if shake If he out. wins this season, he is the greatest ever. I think I, I'd already put him up there simply because he's dealing, he's got more balls in the air right now than any other player has ever had to deal with. It's not just right. that the cast is all absolute champions with unimpeachable records, although I think we're seeing that some of them, <coughs> Nick, have been exposed <laughs> in really uh, sad uh, and appalling ways. It's not just the constantly finding idols and often without clues. It's not just the politicking and the social games. It's all of that added on yeah. top of which now he has to manage this actually really complicated token economy that mm-hmm. no one is really sure how it will shake out, you know? Right. And that is a wrinkle that has just upped the complexity and he's doing it with a plum, and he is absolutely dunking on some of the greatest to ever do it. I mean, he outplayed Kim two episodes in a row, took her out. With and Kim ease. is yeah. with ease. And Kim yeah. is one of the greatest to ever do it, although I, I would also argue that her one world win is somewhat tainted by the fact that it had like 10 of the dumbest contestants ever in Survivor <laughs> history, like all together. 
So I have Tony. Tony convincing people to give him his fire tokens. It's two unbelievable. Weeks ago was it's unbelievable. Miraculous. Miraculous. And and watching Kageon too, it's like I don't understand why people don't do the thing that Tony does, which is, you know what? I don't have a clue, but I need this idol and I'm gonna go find it. It's out here in this on this island somewhere. And it's a landmark. It's usually a weird looking tree or it's a hole in a rock or it's this or that. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to find it. I don't understand why more players don't do that. Well, sometimes the people who do it are sloppy and get caught and then they put a target on their backs. And then a lot of the times players don't do it because they're afraid of that. So they let their inhibitions get in the way. The most miraculous thing about this season from Tony is that he was ruled by his inhibitions in the first half. I can't be the guy they expect me to be. And now he has pivoted back to that. Yes chaos but a controlled chaos like a deliberately calibrated (laughs) version of the player who won it's i've never seen anything like it It, it's interesting you're so right because so much of his play this season specifically early on seemed like a a response to his game changers performance which was like i'm gonna snort five lines of crystal meth and just do wild (laughs) and and like literally sprint through the jungle while people are watching me I'm going to bury myself in a trap door near the water so I can listen to like crazy stuff. So he's really toned it down. And next I have Parv. I think that her social game, you know, she's been tagged with the flirt kind of label for basically her whole career. And I think I think that kind of doesn't let us really appreciate the great strategist that she is and her all around social game. If you watch those seasons. Mm-hmm going back to Cook and then fans versus favorites. From day one, there's always someone going, we got to get Parv out. We got to get Parv out. We got to get Parv out. Parv, she's a threat. She's, all the guys are like following around like they're on a leash. We have to, she's playing both, always. And then they never quite manage to do it in the way that they want to. And then the other thing is Parv, she said something really smart in Fans versus Favorites about the kind of early romance alliance that had sprung up Amanda and Ozzy and her and James. And mm-hmm. she was talking to Sari, who was, at that time was on the bottom and was kind of between alliances, wasn't sure what to do. And she was, said something like, well, the thing with the boys is, and I'm paraphrasing, you flirt with them a little and they don't ask you any questions. James has not asked me a single thing. And that's like, just smart gameplay and the ability to recognize that and use that consciously. I think she's one of the greats and one of the greats to ever do it. It was remarkable this season to see Nick just go to pieces the second he was around her and just say, I've been in love with you my entire life. Like to (laughs) say that out loud. That was amazing. I've had a crush with you since high school. (laughs) I love you. I think that Parv is obviously a survivor legend, one of the most yeah. important figures in the history of the show. And I always have respected the fact that she embraced her sexuality while knowing that that never had to be the thing that defined her. She has yes, all the exactly aspects correct. of her game and so much respect from everybody that she plays with. And the people who underestimated her as just being somebody who was trying to play the social game. Yeah. We're not talking about them right now, you know? We're talking about her. And she was happy to use that. Happy to use people's own misconceptions of her. I think of Russell Mm -hmm. in Heroes versus Villains. It's like he was convinced that he was running that alliance for the entire season. And you watch it back and it's like, 
actually kind of parv like called all the shots very subtly had big moves hid idols from you that you had no idea about got you to give her an idol like just- she's always had a great feel for what level of pressure you need to be applying on the gas pedal at any given moment in time and when it's the right moment to let the rest of the people who are playing who are going to have to vote for you later know that you're the one running things and making the decisions and when it's the right moment to recede into the shadows and let other people take the heat. She's always had an expert feel for that. Who are your others? Boston Rob. Now, I love Boston Rob. I think... If there's a buck coming, I don't want to hear it. You see the kind of control and the respect he engenders from other castmates, specifically in challenges and in different strategic ideas. You know, Boston Rob is the king of we're all going to sit here and no one's going to go anywhere. Bloody system. Yeah. But somehow people don't really hold that against him as much as they've held it against other players who have tried the very similar thing. Obviously, he walks it like he talks it. Oh, yeah. Does it in challenges? Does it in on the social side, etc.? I do think he's a tad overrated. Crazy. Not getting a win until his like fourth appearance. I think he's a tad overrated. Although I will say, you know, heroes versus villains. If not for Tyson unwisely flipping an alliance on him and a few other things shaking out a different way, which were just basically luck, I think he could have been in the in a final tribal on that. But I think he's a legend. He's an iconic and a legend. Yeah, proud survivor tradition is that the best player not only doesn't always win, but often doesn't win. And, you know, Rob is as strong of a reminder as anyone of that. I think I think Rob he's iconic. Is just I think he's iconic. <laughs> the best. I absolutely also, think he's iconic. Part of the most famous and legendary survivor love story of all time. Amba. It's great. Amba. You know, I feel like Survivor produces more couples than The Bachelor, by the way. There's so many survivor couples. And also, I think if there's anybody that ever actually boned contestants, I'm talking contestants, not family meetings and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. It might have been Amber and Rob, but who knows? For sure. I mean, I think that the contestants have uh, when when a showman springs, they test the bounds of hygiene there. But I think that's also why a lot of survivor romances have actually lasted, because once you see somebody in that state, you really love them for who they are, you know? You're watching them lie to everybody around them, just shit in front of numerous other people. (laughs) What must they smell like? Body hair everywhere. And you're like, yeah, this is the person I want to be with. There's no oral (laughs) at all happening. Believe me. Oh, my God. Uh, Next, I have Sandra. I know that you're not quite as big a fan of Sandra. I like Sandra, and I think the simplicity and the straightforwardness of her strategy actually gives her tremendous latitude her strategy can be summed up by like anybody but me mm-hmm. i don't care who it is as long as it's right. not me and at the same time that allows her to do certain things that i think other players aren't able to do because that strategy is so transparent she's on front street with it yeah even when she's deceiving another player or you know, back to heroes versus villains, there's a heroes versus villains moment where she's like talking to, I forget who, and Russell comes up and she's like, Russell, can I just talk to her? Like, can you just walk away and give me a second? No one else could really do that. And she could do that because everybody knows what her strategy is. Maybe they don't know what the particular move she's going to make at that time is, but they're like, okay, Sandra's just, it's everyone but me. So I don't know what they're talking about right there, but I'm going to walk away. And I think it's a long range strategy and that helps her in final tribals. But I think 
it just provides her tremendous latitude. And two wins is two wins. I understand that oftentimes the best players don't win. I agree with that. But I think two wins is two wins. No, you're right. There is a certain inarguable scoreboard case that you make with Sandra, and it kind of is that simple. I think also the case against her is kind of simultaneously the case for her, like the strategy and the nature of how she plays not participating in challenges that anyone but me approach is not that impressive or compelling, but the fact that she can make it work is actually a level of wizardry, you know, to be able to, to, to sail through like that. So it's just not my preferred sure. style. It's not the thing I gravitate toward the most. Like if I'm on a all-star season and <laughs> one of my fellow contestants compares me to a bench because I never tried challenges, <laughs> I'm mortified and I curl into a pile of coconuts and you never see me again. I'm just throwing that out there. But respect for the queen. I agree with what you say. I think that to your point, the fact that she doesn't compete in challenges, it does two things. One, it should deepen your respect for the other parts of her game, that she's able to go as far as she does, basically while being a negative in challenges. And two, I think what it really shows, and it's something I don't think gets talked about enough, is physical is overrated in Survivor, vastly. And I think a lot of players, specifically early on in the early stages of the game, really overrate it. They're thinking, I'm killing it in challenges. My team needs me. The Aussie thing of like, I just came back to camp with 12 fish on a spear. There's no (laughs) way I'll get blindsided. And then (gasps) what happens? That's always a miscalculation. I think it really shows that there are other aspects of the game. And it's very, very easy to slip into the mindset of, I'm killing it in challenges. I'm killing it at camp physically. Therefore, I am safe. And Sandra never has that veil. You're right. I think the one thing that it just robs you of is the prospect of an immunity run, an individual immunity run late. Which is even what we're seeing from Tony right now, you know? Yeah. He's being targeted every week and it just doesn't matter because he single-handedly can prevent them from eliminating him. That's that's absolutely incredible to watch. Nick's laydown. Oh, is God. one of the most Just mystifying terrible. things I have ever he had seen on that show. To vote out Tony and then gave him immunity they, for peanut butter. How many talks of that? We gotta get him out. It's crucial that we get. Oh, we gotta get him really out this rough. week. He could go on a run. And you lay down. This is, by the way, why I know I could never be on Survivor. The food. I'm so weak when it comes to food. I guess you guys know this as well as anyone in my life, other than my husband. When I'm hungry. Get the fuck away from me. Watch out, world. And the second that a whiff of peanut butter from Jeff and the producers comes my way, I don't care what promises I've made to you. I don't care what I've said (laughs) into the camera. I will be shoving my face into that plate of peanut butter at the expense of all of my allies. (laughs) I can never be on Survivor, ever. (laughs) Though it does seem fun. And then lastly, in my opinion, the best to never win it and who I sadly will probably never win it is Suri. I think one of the great strategists in Survivor history. Suri getting voted out without a single vote against her is one of the greatest tragedies in Survivor history. I agree. I think she's just one of the best to ever do it. The architect behind the Eric immunity necklace moment. (laughs) The best. Still one (laughs) of the best moments in Survivor history. Just the fact that of having the kind of audacity to go, hey, do you think he'd give you the necklace? And then having the presence of mind to be like, here's what we do when we get into tribal. 
Amanda, you and Parv absolutely blast him. Say you lost respect for him. And we will just be quiet. And that may push him over the edge. And it worked exactly how she drew it up. Suri, love you. I'm sad that you'll probably never get a win. What are your seasons? Okay, seasons. Let's do this quickly. Quick one. Quick one! (laughs) Heroes versus Villains, season 20. Sandra's win. Just an incredible cast, incredible level of gameplay. Oh, yeah. So many Survivor icons on that season. You have Sandra, you have Sari, Tyson, Rob, Coach for the comedic relief, JT, JT, Rupert, coach. Colby, Parv, Russell in the back-to-back run, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just a, an almost peerless cast. The Parv, Russell, Sandra final three is maybe the best final three in Survivor history, certainly up there. And what it represents for, you know, the history, survivor history with Sandra's second win. That's an incredible season. Sandra throwing Russell's hat in the fire. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing, amazing moment. Uh, These are not in any, in necessarily ordered for me, by the way, just five that I really love. And I should say, I have not seen every single season of survivor. I watched the first few seasons. Then I took a lot of time off. And then I started again in 2008, back half of 2008. And I've watched every season since. So some blind spots for me in the run that I missed. Like, I've never seen Cook Islands, for example. I got to go back and watch that one day. A little bit of a mess, but worth watching. Yule has been an interesting player for me to get acquainted with this season. Continuing with my list here, David versus Goliath, season 37. This is not recency bias, I swear. I loved this season every fucking week. Nick won, which... I don't think of it as Nick's season, even though he won. No shade at Nick. I enjoyed watching yeah. him in David versus Goliath, but this is Christian's season in my mind. Christian is one of the great, he won the season, even though he didn't win the season, Survivor contestants. The mid-shoot cyclone evacuation, like, that's such a rare thing in Survivor. That was incredible. And I often find that compelling Survivor seasons manage to transcend the occasional inanity of the theme. This was one of the themes that I actually thought really worked, even though I wasn't expecting it to. There was a lot of emotional heft, especially on the David side. Those people really felt the burden of being the underdog and had a a thirst and a a desire to prove themselves that I found like, I don't know, I'm an easy mark for this stuff, but genuinely compelling every week. And again, Christian was just a mastermind. I loved that season. Next for me, I already have winners at war in my top five this current season. I already have it in my top five. Yeah, it's been hammer after hammer after hammer. Every single episode has been great. Just awe-inspiring. Every week, so many of my favorite players are on there, which is obviously a thrill. I, As we've talked about before, I have had the slightly weird second-half season experience where the people I'm most interested in are all on Extinction, so I barely get any time with them. But it's still been incredible to watch. The gameplay has been so frantic that there are moments where you're like are they even playing well but it's also elevated within that frantic pace it's a fascinating dynamic constantly clearly thinks she's playing well and you ask yourself am i the best (laughs) (laughs) so so funny i loved that the the other struggle that survivor sometimes has because i think survivor is this fascinating case study in constants and change this thing that you know is going to be there this comfort we're 20 years in 40 seasons in and then all of the tweaks they make and sometimes you know riley wrote a great piece for the ringer a couple years ago survivors twisting itself into a pretzel sometimes they overcorrect 
I thought that would be the case with the fire tokens this season, but I've actually really enjoyed that. The idea of introducing a currency and really trying to say Survivor is supposed to be a society, I've loved that. And it's also just introduced a a new level of both trust and duplicity that is always part of that key Survivor brew. And listen, we haven't mentioned Jeff Probst yet. This season has given us some incredible Probst moments. He, at Tribal, he's just like... He was literally pretending to call a race last week, watching them all yeah. whisper to each other. It was remarkable to watch. Next for me, Blood versus Water, Tyson's win, season 27. Blood versus Water <laughs> setups are some of the most gut-wrenching setups. <laughs> oh my God. The former contestants versus loved ones is a really, really, really great theme. Testing the idea of how can you allow yourself to behave this way on TV and you often think it's because no one I know is there with me watching me. Well, what if you changed that? It's just brilliant. Let's note the cast in general. You have Tyson, obviously, who I love. Brad Culpepper and Monica, you know, uh, always yeah, wonderful Monica. Survivor TV. And when we're talking about the theme and the rich text that it provides, it would be a dereliction of duty not to note that Blood versus Water gave us Sierra voting out her own mother. A survivor moment that will never be topped. Ever. <laughs> That's remarkable. It's and pretty good. Tyson, my fave one. Finally for me, Kagayan. Brains versus Braun versus Beauty. Tony's win, season 28. Just an incredible cast. The Tony-Sarah relationship in that season. I mean, we're still seeing the, the dividends of that blue blood, today. That blue blood, baby. <laughs> The uh, the things that Tony would say constantly. Sarah, Sarah, I swear, I swear on my shield. I swear on my kids. I say, you know, like, the blue blood, we're both cops, right? Come on. Just an unbelievable display in lying and manipulation. I really enjoyed the Cass Spencer dynamic that season, even though it was yeah. often quite painful to watch. It was like a mom and a son. Yeah, but like they were always really angry at each other. <laughs> yeah. Cliff Robinson on this season. Latasha, I really enjoyed watching. Wu is one of my favorite Survivor players, and he was here. This really fascinating set of interpersonal politics. Elevated level of jury play in this season. Yeah. I kind of thought the theme was appalling when I first heard it, and the season is, I think, pretty widely considered one of the best Survivor seasons ever. Sure, just I really, agree. really worked. What about you? What are your favorite seasons? Yeah, I have Kagiyan as well. And no, pre- well, in sort of, in a very loose order, I'm going to go first with Heroes versus Villains, season 20, for all the reasons that you mentioned. Incredible cast, Russell versus Rob, the Parv-Russell alliance, Sandra winning, Sandra throwing Russell's hat in the fire, uh, Coach being the absolute pinnacle weirdo of Survivor history, having that moment where where he's like weeping because everybody's making fun of him because he does Tai Chi on the beach and wears that like ridiculously long feather earring and Tyson being like, really rough. don't do your exercises on the beach anymore. Don't try and give out advice. People don't like your advice. They laugh at you. And Coach is like <laughs> weeping. That's <laughs> like, really tough. Moment. There's also like a moment where Coach in a confessional is like talking about Parv and like wanting to get her out and talking about how dangerous she is. And she's like, you know, Parv is just like a great flirt, but I'm and I'm paraphrasing. Uh, Parv is just flirting with all the guys. I'm immune to that. Like if I was on Survivor and I saw Coach come into jury with that fucking feather earring, I would have to get up and rip it out of his ear. Anyway, heroes versus villains, end to end greatness. Then I would go uh, fans versus favorites. Parvati's win. It gave us the Black Widows. It gave us the Eric 
blindside when he gives up his immunity necklace, second introduction of Ozzy, the Ozzy-Amanda relationship. A lot, a lot of great stuff there. Very entertaining. Lots of fun blindsides. The fans were basically a mess, but they got it together at the end. Just a great, 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 great season with a great cast. Kageon, Tony, all the reasons that you said, I love the brains versus brawn versus beauty setup. You can't underrate what an all-time shitty tribe the Brains tribe was early on in this. You had Jatia flipping out, pouring all the rice in the fire. The GM from the Marlins going home on the fucking first (laughs) night. Uh, uh, And then on the night that Jatia pours the rice in the fire, she doesn't even go home because I think that guy Garrett, they hated that guy even more. Just in... Like an incredibly shitty tribe, probably the worst single tribe of all time. Then I would have Millennials versus Gen X, which was like a setup that I I originally was like, "Mm, I don't know about this, but I thought it was a great cast. It introduced Adam into our lives. I I was not pulling for him, but like I really enjoyed that season. (laughs) No shade, but yeah, not one of my favorites. Not one of my favorites. David versus Goliaths, for all the reasons that you said, incredible setup. Nick, the last David left and the things that he accomplished. Christian, one of the great weirdos in Survivor history, just like an absolute brainiac genius out there, a true exemplar of beards or men's push-up bras because he just became like 85% more handsome when his beard grew out. And then TBD, it's an unfinished season, but Winners at War is going to be in my top three, I think, when it's all said and done. It's been remarkable. It truly has. Number six, Dan Desmond. You've each been commissioned to write the continuing adventures of any character, dead or alive, you've ever covered on Binge Mode. Who do you pick and why? Thank you, Mal. You go first. Okay, I'm going to shock you, and I'm going to limit myself to one pick here for the sake of time. I... I know. You guys oh! actually both had, you both just had literal jaw drop reactions. Oh! <laughs> Great stuff. I am choosing Jon Snow. Jon Snow after season eight. Look, maybe we'll get more of Jon's story eventually from George. George, I believe in you. I'm rooting for you every day. I think about you, buddy. And at that point, I'll happily put down my quill and parchment. But in this current universe, I want to be back with Jon again. I want to write about his life at and beyond the wall out there with the free folk. I want to write about Tormund. I want to write about John living with that pain and regret, the guilt and the shame of what he did, but also this new sense of true belonging that he is of the true pure North. And that is where he's meant to be. Obviously I want to write about ghost protect ghost ghosty. My boy. I want to revisit that relationship (laughs) between them in the way that it is meant to be explored and honored. I want to write about the inevitable moment when somebody in the realm says, hey, wait a minute, you know, he is like still the true heir. What if we revisited that for a moment and all the (laughs) scenarios that could unfold from there? Obviously, I want to write about more cave sex for our dear Jon Snow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He is a character that I cherish and adore as his ghost, of course. And so I love it as A, a way to spend time with characters and in a part of the world and story that I so deeply cherish and truly, truly miss and have spent a lot of time thinking about. I wonder what John's life is like now. 
but also somebody who connects so fully to so many of the other characters. So it is kind of a cheat in that sense. Like you just know that John is going to have interactions with Arya, with Sansa, with Bran, with Tyrion, with Sam, maybe even with Drogon one day. So he's a conduit to exploring other characters and aspects of the world that I also miss, but he just remains my favorite, the person who I'm most invested in and the character that I still think about the most. So that's my pick, Jon Snow and Ghost. What about you? I will pick one as well. I had John on there. That would be a great one. I think Mance Raider and the various kings beyond the wall. Mance Raider's uh, yeah. journey from uh, brother of the Night's Watch to this kind of heart of darkness thing where he goes across the wall, falls in love with the culture of the wildlings and all of a sudden becomes their king. That must have been an incredible story. But I'm going to go with Mad-Eye Moody, legendary Amazing. figure, legendary aura, legendary warrior against dark magic. The toll of that is etched into his very body. Yes. The kind of figure that other really titanic characters in the wizarding world talk about with awe and in hushed tones. And I want to know how he got that reputation. You know, we get we get a taste of it, but I want more. I want to know about the young Mad-Eye Moody. I want to know about his actions during the first Wizarding War. I want to know what he did in between. I want to know all that stuff. I love it. I would love writing that. Darling Alistair. Yes. <laughs> Great picks. Man, Miss Harry Potter and Game of Thrones. Okay, number seven. Dylan Ike asks, who would comprise your ideal fellowship of the ring using current professional athletes? Great question. Fun thing to think about. Jason, in the spirit of fellowship. Yes. Let's build our squad together. So. Let's do it. Obviously, we should establish before we get to actually listing our nine, we are the Elrons. We are forming our company of the ring, our nine walkers. That's right. Isaac, you could be part of our Elrond hive mind here too. Cram you as well if you want. In Lord of the Rings, just to establish this, the fellowship is Frodo, Sam, Mary, Pippin, Aragorn, Boromir, Legolas, Gimli, Gandalf. So who are the athletes we're picking for each of those roles? You start. Number one, LeBron our Aragorn, our leader, ah, yes. our king. I love it. I think we both agree it's a no-brainer. Even the nickname fits. Yeah. It's also all he could definitely pull off suddenly shifting to Strider as one of his monikers easily. Right. The way he strides through the paint, it's perfect. That's a great one. We're gonna go with Steph. Steph Curry, sticking to the NBA for a minute as our Legolas. Deadly accuracy from range. Yes. In incomparably quick release. This is crucial, obviously, out there for Legolas and Steph on the floor in battle. There's also that ethereal quality to the disposition. This pure spirit, this childlike wonder that unlocks so much for so many. Our wizard, Gandalf, Messi, Leo Messi, mm. just capable of feats that absolutely leave all watchers in awe mouth gaping, head spinning. The fact that he had a serious knee injury in 2015, then came back, it's like Gandalf the Grey returning as Gandalf the White. Leo Messi, the wizard. Love it. Okay, I'm going to take the next two together and then you can take the two after that because they're kind of duos. That's part of how we thought about the selections. Our Frodo is Patrick Mahomes would like the record to state that we all know this should be Lamar Jackson, but <laughs> now that I've said it out loud, I'll continue. Initially overlooked, but becomes the savior 
has an innovative spirit, does the seemingly impossible as a matter of routine, fends off discouragement. This is important in a hero. Is a quintessential prodigy, despite that point about being initially overlooked, you really start to rise into that role. Also, Patrick Mahomes used to play baseball, and this is crucial heading into our next pick, our Sam pick, because we need Frodo and Sam to function as a duo. And the baseball background for Mahomes gives us a little bit more confidence in the bonding with Mike Trout, who is our Samwise Gamgee. Exceptionally talented, but seemingly unremarkable at first glance. (laughs) As the best players in their sports, though, Trout and Mahomes would have that shared respect. They would mesh and bond on that level. We are the kings. We are the best, not only doing it now, but when you look back, we might be among the best whoever did it. And they really need to be able to have that shared respect because the relationship between Frodo and Sam, they have to function as that team that's That's so core to this exercise. Also, the Subway commercials that Mike Trout has done, I think, really prepare him to sling the Lembus the elven bread, you know? You got to always think about what you're eating on the road. And crucially, Sam, while he might be discouraged in the moment, never gives in to that dismay. When Frodo tells him it's time to go home, does our guy quit? Not for long. You can always count on Sam to stay true and to stay by your side. Mike Trout has played on the Angels for his entire career. Are they out there winning the World Series every year? Does it get really, really hard to look at the roster around him and wonder when they're going to try to maximize his career? No, I'd like to say I think the Rendon and Otani Trout trio is pretty exciting, but that's a conversation for another podcast. (laughs) He still plays as hard as you need him to play, and that is true to Sam's spirit. Give us our Mary and our Pip. Megan Rapino and Sue Bird, Mary and Pip, respectively. Megan Rapino, cheerful swagger, not the person you think of at first, but absolutely inspiring and loyal. Obviously, together with Sue Bird, a power coupling that is just off the charts in terms of attitude and confidence and coolness. Good hangs. Tremendously good hangs. Sue Bird is our pip. You know, like her fictional namesake, tremendously titled, one of the greatest to ever do it. You know, Pip is a Thane. Subert is a champion. They have that together in terms of the actual concrete things you can look at to go, oh, what has this person accomplished? How about rings? How about titles? How about greatness? Mm-hmm. There it is. Mm-hmm. I love Who's it. Who's next? Serena is our Gimli, one of the greatest to ever do it. And it is anything, period. Incomparable strength. Really, really rare stamina. And if we're yeah. forging a fellowship... And we're storming the gates of Mordor. We need that stamina. That fierce serve, Serena's game. You imagine that when she's wielding an axe? I mean, the the orcs would shudder, shudder in her midst. (laughs) She brings such prominence to a sport that is sometimes overlooked by sports fans. And... That is very much in line with the heart of Gimli's character, opening up an aspect of Middle-earth, of that world and that story that people don't always necessarily think about initially, but there's so much there to admire and dive into once you look. Bring it home for us. Who's our Boromir? 
our Boromir and our meme, our, which means our future meme king is That's my right. mother's first son. That's right. Tiger Woods. Can't doubt the pedigree, mm. obviously, right? Yes. Father, in both cases, extremely influential. And then incredible impact. But there's just a few question marks towards the end of the tale. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some questionable decisions. <laughs> Some roadblocks uh, you might along say the way. It absolutely road does fork both kind of given to their more baser instincts at, at really crucial times to, you have to say, negative consequences. Yeah. But- yeah. Ultimately, if you look at the totality of the tale, it's a redemptive arc. You're right. And inspiring for both. Although human frailty uh, playing a huge role in the stories of both characters. That's exactly right. One does not simply win the masters. (laughs) One does not simply (laughs) crash one's car. God. Oh, man. Number eight, Mitchell Curran asks, which franchise's characters would make for the most interesting Zoom meeting? What do you got? What are you going with? It's an easy pick for me. It's Game of Thrones characters. Yeah. Utter confusion would fucking reign mm-hmm. as you're trying to explain to Jon Snow, Tyrion, Cersei, etc. Yeah, what it is that you are doing, what they will be seeing, the tech, uh, trying in the broadest strokes possible to explain the kind of technological wizardry that they're about to experience. This is not sorcery. Don't worry. And still, they would be absolutely confused. Melisandre would, oh, what sorcery is this? What? What new sorcery am I staring into? Ah, you know the, the everybody would just be falling out, not understanding what's happening. John would be trying to fight the figures on the screen. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't want to even get into virtual backgrounds, which would absolutely throw everything into disarray. Oh, you know, like God. as a joke, you know, you'd put like the Red Keep or something behind you, and people would be, "How are you?" How have you usurper? Oh, How has Mallory Rubin done this? And no, it's it's a virtual background, folks. She's yeah. not actually there. Yeah. It would be hilarious. Deaths, I wouldn't rule out deaths ensuing from this. Oh, seems like a given. Well, who would you pick? So I ran through the cases for our three primary binge mode seasons so far, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, and Star Wars. And I ended up in the same place as you did, choosing Mm. Game of Thrones. But here's why I quickly, I eliminated Star Wars and Harry Potter from the consideration set. Star Wars, I just think this would be normal for them, basically, right? It's old hat. It's not that dissimilar from a hologram meeting. Think of the council meetings where half of the people who are in attendance are basically zooming in via hologram, I think it would certainly be amusing to see certain Jedi who preach patience and focus get very annoyed at the younglings who are switching out their backgrounds and having more fun with what you can do on Zoom. And I could definitely see a character like Ventress maybe literally killing somebody who accidentally shared the meeting ID on Twitter. Things could still go very, very wrong. But I think broadly... Zoom feels like a corollary for things that are already unfolding in the Star Wars universe. So if the goal here is the most interesting, which I think we both 
processed as like most wild and unpredictable. Got to eliminate Star Wars. So then I went to Harry Potter. Now, the characters in Harry Potter are used to conversing with talking portraits, with floating heads that pop into the fireplace via the flu network. They receive screeching letters, howlers, when they fuck up. They can talk to ghosts. They can send messages via Alpos, via Patronus. If they need meeting notes from a meeting they miss, they dive into the pensive. Zoom would not phase them nor impress them with the obvious caveat that the tech, the technology needed to work Zoom would not function at Hogwarts, as Hermione would surely be jumping in here to remind us as we're engaging in this thought experiment. Meaning that if the wizards were in a situation where they needed Zoom, where they required it, and where they were able to use it, it could mean that they were somewhere where they maybe weren't able to use magic, at least to the fullest extent possible, or maybe needing to use magic stealthily. So that was intriguing to consider. And then, of course, certain characters are just such wild cards. Like if you put Trelawney on a Zoom call, basically nothing else in life matters. That would just be fully immersive entertainment. I found it compelling on that front. And of course, imagine Mr. Weasley's delight. My God. At getting to engage with this muggle technology. I mean, he's excited about plugs. What, what would he what would he do with Zoom? So that's very compelling to me. And so I did consider Harry Potter for that reason. He would actually like come in his pants. He would come in his trousers. <laughs> Arthur would spontaneously oh ejaculate if you showed him Zoom. And it would be oh my God. captured on Zoom. So great. Hey, these are <laughs> these are things to consider. So I did find that Harry Potter consideration compelling. But ultimately, as you did, I landed on Thrones for all the reasons you said. So many big personalities. Everyone would be fighting for that airtime, cutting each other oh off, God. talking over each other. Imagine how long Bobby B, no. Robert Baratheon, would have gone without realizing he was on mute. Imagine Dad. how many... <laughs> Titles, titles. Ned, 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 you go, sir. You go, you go, sorry. You go, you go. <laughs> I miss that voice so much. I'm not. Ned, sorry. I, I mean, imagine the, the new calendar invite pops up. You get the Zoom link and Joffrey pops up. Is it urgent? You know, it's Is it urgent compelling. for me to join this? Every time you have a, a big group meeting and it starts with roll call, hey, everybody go around, introduce yourselves, make sure everybody knows who you are, what do you work on? And Bobby B just pops in, titles, titles, titles. You know the damn words. Such a rich text to consider. Think about characters like Littlefinger and Varys, how often they would record and stash away what unfolded in oh that God. Zoom meeting, planting spies into meetings, little birds that they're not invited to. I'm just imagining like little, little finger being does anyone know how to turn off the alert that this <laughs> meeting is being recorded? <laughs> just, the Zoom meetings with little finger oh starts off. This meeting is being recorded. What's that? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> what uh? What background did did Sansa have today? What color was it? Memorable shade. A memorable. A memorable shade. Pull up. Put up your shirt. Put up your hood on this. On this oh, Zoom call, it's incredible to think about. We're going to Zoom with your Aunt Lysa. <laughs> the veil. I, I, like the veil. To, I like to think of Arya attempting to use 
this tech to her advantage, basically turning the video stream. Think of Ex Machina, facial recognition, printing 3D masks of everybody's faces after that for new faceless man magic. The Dothraki thought that the seas were made of poison water for, (laughs) I don't know, hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Zoom, they would be like, this is stealing my soul. Get this sorceress... Get this blood magic away from me. It would cause massacres. Yeah. Yeah. This is Miri territory in their minds, for sure. <laughs> Mary Mazdor is a Zoomer. You noted the distance and how did you get somewhere so quickly? I just think the people who yeah. are used to, you know, who are accustomed to weeks or days passing between correspondence, sending a raven when you get it, when it reaches the person who you're targeting, how long it takes you to actually get somewhere traveling by horse or carriage, being able to communicate in the moment across the realm would totally transform the way that they conduct themselves. And I think it would be riveting to watch that unfold. Pycelle accidentally putting deplorable man, not even a maester in the group chat in Zoom instead of sending it to someone (laughs) via DM. The possibilities are endless. I think Thrones is the clear pick. We're in agreement here. Yes. Deplorable man. Not even a maester. Pycelle, your mic's not on. You just see Pycelle just jabbering. (laughs) Pycelle's muted, guys. He's not. Also, Pycelle is definitely the character who forgets that Roz and her vag wash bowl are clearly visible in the background, you know, not thinking about what's in his camera lens range. I'm going to read number nine for you because this is an ISO Rubin moment. Allison Gordon asks, (laughs) if you could quarantine with any top chef, any yeah. chef from Top Chef, who would you choose? Now, note, we are making this all time. I yes. checked out yes, on yes, Top yes. Chef a few seasons ago, but I'd love to hear your take, Mallory Rubin. Well, I would encourage you to watch this season. It's been truly, truly wonderful. I am going to go with Michael Voltaggio. Bam! Of the Voltaggio brothers. Now, I did watch I did watch his season, so I am aware of him. Ugh. It's hard not to be aware of Michael Voltaggio, winner Uh of Top Chef season six, Vegas, of course, his brother, Brian Voltaggio, two-time runner-up, currently competing in All-Stars LA. Listen, Michael Voltaggio, fellow child of Maryland, you know, in his case, Frederick, Maryland, think of all the the bonding we could do over crab chips and burger cookies and Otterbein cookies, on and on the list goes. Go get tatted up together. I would love to. He's my favorite Top Chef contestant from the regular Top Chef seasons. I'm going to get to Masters in a second. Just remarkable. So smooth, so skilled, rugged, yet refined. And I know for a fact that I love, love, love his food because when Inc. was still open in Los Angeles, I enjoyed so many absolutely delicious, wonderful meals there. He's so inventive as a chef. I think it would be an absolute honor to be quarantined with him. I do want to quickly (laughs) note to considerations for me from the Top Chef Masters universe. Jonathan Waxman, Barbudo in New York was my absolute favorite restaurant in New York when I lived there. Some of the best food I've ever had in my entire life. And he is a magician. And Sang Yoon, also from Top Chef Masters, who, of course, is the chef of Lakshan, one of my absolute You love Lakshan. That's the turn favorite. Los Angeles restaurants. So they're in the consideration set for me. I mean, I'd be honored to be quarantined with so many of the chefs, even just looking at this season. I mean, Brian Voltaggio, Gregory, Melissa, Kevin, there are so many amazing chefs, but Michael is my pick. (laughs) Number 10, Evan Nospel says, 
I am dying to have Mallory Rubin and Network play out. What happens if GOT's final season plays out one year later during COVID? So what would happen if season eight of Game of Thrones were airing right now instead of one year ago? I think the response would be even more intense. I think the mm-hmm. the peaks of it. I think the people who are like, this was a letdown. I am disappointed. I am hurt. I'm mad. I think those voices would be raised even louder because there's nothing else to kind of sap that energy from. There's no sports. You know, TV and movies have kind of are slowly ground to a halt or have slowed significantly. And so everybody's focus would be on this. And I think the kind of extremes would just be a lot louder. So the yeah. people who are disappointed would be a lot louder. And I think the people would be like, you know what? I'm glad this is here. Cut it a break. It's fine. Yeah. Did it end the way we wanted it to? No, but you know what? I'm fine. I think those voices would be louder as well. What do you think? I think that's right. And that's definitely what we're missing right now is more toxic debate between polarized groups online. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty engrossing to think about the prospect of a heightened positive response out of basically gratitude? You know, is there any chance that we would all have a more forgiving response for the back half of season eight because we'd just be so desperate for A, an escape, and an escape certainly into a world that we cherish and adore, and also B, crucially, for a shared experience. You know, the way that Thrones brought people together every day is really, really rare, really uncommon. And I think that there would be an appreciation for that aspect of it that would be pretty sincere and powerful. However, I also think it's pretty easy to envision that people who are disappointed with season eight would just be even more dismayed because when you're looking for things that make you feel better and bring you joy and that's not what you get out of them, that can have a real impact on your mood and your disposition. I, I think also that the, when you consider the monoculture, it could cut both ways. If you know, think of something like the NFL draft, the numbers for the NFL draft, the viewership, astonishing. And think of what the numbers for Thrones would be if it was airing right now. I mean, it would be the the thing, the thing. We thought the numbers were high when season eight actually aired. This would really, really redefine what monoculture looks like. So. I'd like to think that there would be a chance for all of us to celebrate this thing together, but I'm not sure that it would go that way. I do really miss Thrones. I find myself craving a a rewatch increasingly by the day, thinking about where we were one year ago. So at a minimum, I would like to be able to join together as a community and share something that we love. But I don't know where we would all find ourselves after that. Jay, quickly, before we wrap, a bonus for you. Yes. This is from Raheem. What would you two do to get Harrison Ford to stop flying planes. You know, he seems like the kind of figure, the kind of person that's not going to really listen to what anybody else has to say. He's a hard-headed guy, clearly. But I think when you have an amount of plane mishaps that are more than one. Yeah, you got to stop. If you have a multiple amount of mishaps, you need to stop it. Hang it up. Do something else. You're 77. Please chill. I don't know what it will take, but I'm just begging you to stop. Please protect Harrison Ford at all costs. Please, Harrison, don't do this anymore. (sighs) Let's actually tell him the odds. How about that? (laughs) All right, friends. The council isn't always right. That's why we're asking for your help. Just as we've asked for Isaac Lees and Zach Krams, our indispensable producer and researcher, 
We hope that you enjoyed this week's episode, that you're staying healthy and safe. And we will be back next week to chat about the conclusion of the Clone Wars. And then after that, we'll be back for Saga Book 2 issues 19 through 36. Yeah. Until then, remember, binge mode is behind everything. In the shadows. Always. But soon, very soon, we will reveal ourselves. Pull up your hood. I'm not. Young boys, do we? Are you gonna go or should I go? No, you you go. You go.